Lorenzo Langstroth, the father of modern beekeeping, said that bees are the poetry of the rural economy. You're listening to some audio of beehives from my own backyard. It's not an annoying noise, maybe in small doses, kind of soothing actually. But it might be grating if someone took your ear and stuck it up against a beehive, maybe glued it there. You'd get to hear those droning buzz all the time, all day, all night. How would you do with that? Would the bees sound like poetry anymore? Or would it start to get on your nerves? Many thousands of people who have documented a manifestation of what's called the world hum, or the worldwide hum, report hearing a sort of phantom noise. Many explain it as the sound of an idling truck engine, the hum of an air handler, or other uh, similar noises. Or, as you'll hear a little bit later, maybe the sound of an active beehive. The hum, and I'm using a capital H here, is usually louder at night. Some people can drown it out with a fan or other white noise, but it's there, and it doesn't seem to leave. As our guest today will explain, people hearing this noise obsess over it, tear apart their house, and investigate their neighborhood. But ultimately, they'll scour the internet, and that's where they might find the work of Dr. Glad McPherson. Dr. McPherson is the mind behind the World Hum Map and Database, a long-term scientific investigation into the hum phenomenon. It was a real treat to be able to talk to Dr. McPherson, who has spent the better part of a decade trying to get to the bottom of this. Explanations for the hum are stubborn and elusive. The academic record on the hum is sparse, to say the least. It really evades academic disciplinary silos, which are all the rage now in academia. Nobody can really say why people hear the hum. One day, you too might just wake up and hear it yourself. And I think he'd be the first to describe himself as an accidental public face for the entire hum enigma. You can't read about the hum these days without running into him. His commentary on it has appeared in everything from The New Republic to The Guardian to Coast to Coast to Japan's NHK News. He spent a lot of time deconstructing possible causes for the hum and overcoming some wild theories. For instance, as a huge X-Files fan, I have to reference the episode in Season 6 where uh, they actually bring up the hum. It's in an episode called Drive. So in this clip I'm about to play, Agent Scully and Mulder discuss this science fiction scenario where extremely low-frequency waves explode a man's head and you'll hear Mulder reference the Taos hum in New Mexico, which was one of the first and most popular documented incidences of the hum and uh, people hearing the hum in the United States. There's more incredible theories out there about the hum than was presenting in that clip. Uh, tectonic plate shifts, 5G, I'm sure someone has suggested aliens or angels or both, plus a million other theories. But the fact of the matter is that at the moment, the leading theory on the hum is a little more mundane than all of that. Dr. McPherson and his team have spent a long time trying to, I want to say debunk theories, but testing them scientifically in order to rule them out. As we'll hear in this interview, Dr. McPherson is a lot more than a PR point man and conspiracy theory critic and scientific manager for this cause. He's also an advocate with deep concern for the livelihoods of others. While for some the hum is annoying, for others it's debilitating. 
There are many thousands of sufferers worldwide looking for answers. The World Hum Map and Database Project is probably their best chance at finding one in this lifetime, and there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done. In this podcast, we'll talk about how Dr. McPherson got to be the head man for the hum, a little bit about far-fetched explanations and current theories, but also about the struggle for recognition. At issue were questions like, how does emotional attachment to an explanation factor into scientific inquiry? What would you do with the help of a billionaire donor? And what's the future of this project? After this conversation, I had a lot to consider like how history will view the causes we champion today, what it means to suffer from a malady that's undetectable and unseen, and the balance between profit and problem-solving. The Tinderbox podcast is about civil and political conflict. To me, this is a conflict of ideas and incentives. It's also a daily conflict for the people who suffer from it. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Dr. McPherson, so let's get it started right now. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. And um, so I've, I've done a little bit of reading on, on what you're up to, probably not exhaustive, but as much as I can. And um, so what I, what I want to ask you is maybe for your elevator pitch and how you talk about the hum to, to folks who are asking you. And for instance, if you're at a, uh, if you're at a cocktail party or something, <laughs> somebody says, well, what do you do for a for a hobby or something, how do you uh, how do you describe the hum? Well, um, I would I would I would question the word hobby, but um, <laughs> as to the as to the the, the thrust of your question, uh, this was something that I um, stumbled uh, over and into, and it's it's the classic story that I've told many times. But in a nutshell, uh, in spring of two thousand twelve. Uh, I became aware in the late evening, early nighttime, of uh, a most unusual um, sound, which at, at first I thought just were float planes flying overhead, or because we have a lot of that here in this part of the world. And then um, the one evening that I thought that I should actually step outside and see what all this is about, when I stepped outside, the sound stopped. And uh, well, of course, that piqued my interest immediately. And then I went about a, a series of investigations uh, leading right up to cutting the power to the entire house. Naturally, I thought maybe there was a fridge malfunctioning or something. So when I did that, the hum became even louder. The noise became louder. Um, then I started, you know, walking around the neighborhood and not hearing it outdoors and led me to getting in my car. And with the windows rolled up and the engine off, I could hear it. So that led to the obvious experiment of driving around and everywhere I went, I could hear it. Then I did what most people end up doing. And in fact, the vast majority of people who um, end up learning about the hum through my site do what I did, which is to go to, uh, go to the internet and type in, oh, something along the lines of um, unusual low frequency humming noise, something like that. And that led to descriptions of the phenomenon. And uh, 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 in the middle of all the and awash in all the conspiracy and outright lunacy that's been associated with the topic, there were several serious um, discussions and papers, um, which very quickly led me to conclude that there is uh, a need now to develop um, a serious forum for discussion of the phenomena and for uh, research into it. 
And that led to my project and led to uh, a, a surprisingly wide exposure and hopefully normalization of the topic. And that's that's what I understand you've been, really been setting out to do over the past couple of years is really trying to normalize it. And why I'm sure you're you're here as well is, is trying to get the word out and to um, almost it seems like to let people know that um, they're well to let people know they're they're not crazy and also to show people that these people are not crazy and I've seen you use the um, comparison of this to uh, tinnitus um, saying like how do you know tinnitus exists um, um, and how can you tell somebody that they're not hearing a particular noise um, it, it the the comparison tinnitus tends to be a powerful one mm-hmm. that tends to it's it's a bit of a logic trap that I use um for the incredulous but at the same time that discussion leads to the realization uh like it or not that reality itself has very much has a democratic element to it but i mean for example like the the example i've used is that if if, if somebody tells you or tells me that they see a purple rats um uh, running up and down the wall my reaction is i believe that you see that but i don't believe that uh, we can set up any sort of um, scenario that can externally validate that, mm-hmm. and, which is a polite way of saying, no, that's a, that's a hallucination. Right. And um, with regard to the part about people not being crazy, um, there's actually a very simple um, fact that rules out at least mass hysteria. And that is the vast majority of the people who uh, discover uh, my work do so independently through their own searching and not because they heard it from somebody else. Yeah. And the fact that the experiences are so similar across the board. So, um, no, in fact, it's one of the few things that keeps me going is the, the fact that people describe the massive emotional um, relief that comes from finding out that, that this is, in fact, a, a well-documented phenomenon. If I can add to your, your um, repertoire of logic traps, I was trying to think of a comparison. Out here in the eastern U.S., we have um, Lyme disease, which for a while was... Um, a public health threat that wasn't really recognized. Um, it was generally misdiagnosed, but more recently has been the um, anosmia. I think they call it with uh, COVID-19 or para or paranosmia. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. It's one of those things you've only seen written, but losing your sense of smell or smelling um, a, basically a false smell, which I know people who are suffering from and it, they've done the same thing. Um, in this case of the hum that um, people are doing, which is going out and seeking out information and finding essentially support groups of, of other sufferers. And it's been a huge relief for people. uh, It sounds like, and just reading your database and going through, I just scrolled through many entries and spent some time reading people talking about it is there's, it's, it's a very difficult thing for people to, to get across and, and many of the descriptions are so reaching, um, you know, there's just a, a multitude of descriptions about what this sound sounds like. And then we can, we can sort of get into what your leading, your leading explanation is at the moment, but um, you know, many different frequencies, but there are some frequencies that be, can, can be ruled out. And, and you've done so much work to help people rule out say an air conditioner unit gone haywire. And I've seen um, Henrik's work, um, who is on your team, who has, you know, created several guides that have helped people basically screen out the nonsense um, from what uh, would be the, the real hum, essentially. Yeah. Now, Heinrich, um, 
who's based uh, in Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. He um, has made some profound contributions in that regard. And the reason why that, that his work was so necessary was because that many standard anthropogenic sounds uh, ranging, well, you mentioned, I think maybe one or two of them, but transformers and heat pumps and so many things have similar characteristics to the world hum. And so he's developed a method for teasing out and separating those two things. And in fact, it's turned out to be a significant part of the project because of all the people who report to the database, I end up throwing out well more than half the reports. Wow. And it's not, and I certainly believe the people who are making noise complaints. Unfortunately, it's not what I'm studying. Mm -hmm. It turns out it's become part of the package of what I present on the website, just because it's, it's so useful. And not only can it uh, determine um, whether you're hearing the world hum or not, it can actually give specific tools and advice for pinpointing exactly what and where the, what the sources are of other sounds that people might, might be hearing. Did you think that you would be having that kind of impact in people's lives when you took up this project? Oh my goodness. No, I, 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 I take pains to point out to everybody who interviews me that I'm not a scientist. Mm-hmm. However, I know a little bit about everything. And, you know, I'm looking at the bookshelf behind you, for example, and it looks like you are cut from the same cloth. Uh, however, not only do I have that sort of general uh, knowledge, but I've actually taught, um, in some cases, up to the college level, at least about seven or eight different subjects. So it puts me in a position to know just enough to be dangerous, as they say. But uh, it gives me to know just enough to ask the right questions and to go um, find people who can uh, answer the types of questions that I'm asking. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it has um, put me into a rather unusual position. And that is I have uh, willingly essentially sacrificed my uh, privacy uh, to the extent that, especially I am somewhat infamous in this small little town where everywhere I go, including with my own students, Uh, People know exactly what it is that I do on the side on that project and all the major media that I've appeared in. And so I've become the public face of this phenomenon. But the difference between the work that I'm doing and the work, let's say, of David, Dr. David Deming Mm -hmm. or the work of, um, oh, let's say, Jeff Leventhal and those people is that mine is the first in the Internet era. And as a result, we now have the tools and the means to generate a critical mass to ultimately get a serious laboratory or university involved where we can, um, they can conduct the experiments that I've already suggested, but I simply, you know, I don't have access to the equipment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and when that's all done, then I can retreat back to my previous life and get on with it. And how long has it been? So you said 2012 is when you, when you started experiencing and then you started the project itself when? Um, um, the first iteration of the hum map was essentially in December of that year oh. of 2012. So we are coming up on nine years yeah. now. And I think that even though I have made some scientific progress, my main goal has been ad- advocacy and normalization. And one thing I'd like to jokingly point out 
um, is that as much as the media has used me, I've used them. And, 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 and some people have criticized me for adopting the, the phrase, the worldwide hum, mm-hmm. and saying that it intentionally creates an air of mystique and conflates it with more ridiculous things. But it turns out that was intentional because one of the roots to the normalization is, first of all, to make, make people simply aware of it. Mm-hmm. And then for those who are serious, then I can engage them on a serious level about it. So there's been some deliberate media strategy here. Yeah. Um, and um, so I've tried to reach as many people as I, as I could. And I think we've, that's one part of the project that's been reasonably successful. We've on this podcast, we've, we do a little bit of, I don't know if you want to call it media criticism, but have you found, have you found yourself hitting any resistance or things like that, you know, coming yes. up against any walls? Yes, uh, very much so. And I can actually name names. <laughs> um, and, I'm, and I'm and I'm famous for that. Yeah. Um, probably the worst has been Yahoo. Um, now, with with one major exception, Yahoo UK did an excellent piece. But however, some yeah. of the other Yahoo pieces have been a disaster. Wow. Here's what tends to happen, and I, I'm not suggesting any conspiracy on this. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting that two or three times per year, almost like clockwork there is a research, there is research that's reported that claims to have solved the hum. And then when you dig in, you'll see they've done nothing of the sort. And it turns out that it's the, it's not a conspiracy. It's simply that the quality of science reporting is so poor that the people, the the so-called science reporters don't even have a basic grasp of some of the most elementary, like high school level um, topics in, in, in physics and frequency and wavelength. And in some cases, the problems are in translation. There was some really widely reported French research coming out of 2017 and 2018, which was widely reported. And I made quite a bit of noise about it, that uh, in fact, that their research was fascinating, but had absolutely nothing to do with what I'm studying. And so the the real damage done by that is that um, serious people will look at the headlines only and say, okay, well, they've got to the bottom of that one. Now we'll move on to you know, Meghan Markle or something or whatever is catching um, people's attention, whatever other trivia is catching uh, people's attention that day. So, you know, um, there's been um, uh, there's been that. Um, Colin Dickey's piece in The New Republic was interesting. Mm-hmm. My only regret there was that it, it um, you know, um, Steve Kohlhaas, whatever his name is, um, uh, his work was, if we can call it that, was conflated with mine. I, I wish okay. that I wish that the two of us um, hadn't been mentioned in the same article, but so be it. And I would also say that amongst the the whole media experience, ranging from Al Jazeera sending a documentary crew out to NHK from Japan, um, even Coast to Coast, which was an excellent experience, by the way, all of that was great, but there's only one that I regret. And that's the Inside Edition. Huh. And they came up for six hours and we filmed in three different locations. And I ended up getting about 90 seconds squeezed in between the mental illness crowd and the apocalypse uh, uh, folks. And, and it's the one that my students have all seen, the one with 6.5 million views. Now, if only I could monetize that one, um, it was on somebody else's channel. And it's you know, quite notorious, um, again, in my part of the world, 
again, with all the massive number of views. And I don't think I did the project too many favors with that one. But overall, the experience has been good because um, I have ended up taking, and for people who know my work, I take actually a very conservative and fairly strict scientific approach to things, which is the only reason the project has survived. Yeah. And, and I simply wear down, um, you know, the people who would like to uh, attach um, this phenomenon to, you know, more ridiculous things. That's one of the things I've admired about looking at the project, like <laughs> me looking at it now, I, I was sort of familiar with, with the phenomenon and then, you know, dropped out of my consciousness. I, I don't suffer from it and I don't know anybody who tells me that they do. But when I jumped back into it, I was able to take a retrospective on your work and see it over the past few years. And one of the things I noticed is that you, and I think it's very admirable, is that you have gone through the various explanations and possible, you know, possible um, reasons for this occurring and for this phenomenon. And you've knocked them out to the extent that you can. And it doesn't seem like you've become attached to them. And which is, which is what science is, you know, you're looking for the explanation. And I feel like there's many people just looking at the comments that come into you and, and what's thrown at you in the media and explanations just constantly thrown is people get very attached to the idea that this is, uh, it must be 5g it must be this or that and um you know so it, one of the one of the great things about your project and i wondered if you could reflect on this is that you've put aside explanations that don't make sense and that uh can't be uh you, you can't reproduce them you um you had uh, experiments specifically having to do with low frequency um radio or low frequency transmissions things like that that you have put aside. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that process and kind of keeping your emotions out of it. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> well, first of all, I think that to some extent, uh, people misunderstand some of my reactions to their own um, speculations and theories. Mm -hmm. so, so for example, we've got some folks who will make a claim that they have powerful powerful evidence that the, the, that the hum is caused by, by X like whatever their theory is. And it turns out, I mean, in their particular cases, whatever X might be, could well indeed be causing a hum lowercase h. Absolutely. In fact, I could probably list right now off the top of my head 30 such sources. Um, and they maybe resent uh, the fact that I would give several pieces of evidence that um, explain why it's not a generic explanation that is the generic worldwide phenomenon that I'm studying. So there's some very simple um, sets of questions that I can ask or that, that, can, that can sort through that. With regard to your overarching question, um, Dr. David Deming's <clears throat> paper inspired me originally. Okay. And in fact, that's why I named my um, somewhat notorious uh, Deming box experiment in his honor. Now, um, I will point out on this podcast and to whoever asks, I have subsequently been made aware of some of Dr. Deming's positions on certain topics, okay. which I reject out of hand. Okay. Whether it's climate change or with, you know, gun rights, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I view that as a, as an irrelevancy. And I, I don't view that his positions on other topics as being germane to his original speculations on the hum. Mm -hmm. He had 
excellent reason to believe at, at the time in 2004, when that paper was published, that military VLF transmissions were responsible. Yep. And it was quite a compelling case he made. I don't know if you read the paper. Or I not. did. That was one yeah, of the first ones I read. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a really nicely done paper. Mm -hmm. Now, it turns out that uh, he was quite incorrect. Uh, and the reason why is because his, uh, he didn't have the data that I have now. Okay. Like, and just just what, a couple of quick examples. Yeah. There is no such thing as, as hum hotspots. That's something, it's something not the case. Mm -hmm. Now, there are, um, if you take a look at the famous case, let's say, of Kokomo, Indiana. Mm -hmm. Now, there it turns out malfunctioning um, industrial equipment was, was responsible for the majority of those reports. In the Windsor it, uh, situation, I'll, I'll call it the Windsor disturbance, it turns out it's overwhelmingly evident that uh, American industrial activity over on Zug Island is responsible for what's happening. That's not at the lowercase h hum. So when Deming um, suggested VLF uh, transmissions, I he did what every researcher is supposed to do, and that is suggest future research. Mm -hmm. So standing as you know that famous phrase and standing on the shoulder of giants, I I I I I, I picked up his idea and I went ahead with um, the part of it that I could. Yeah. It turns out even his experimental design was problematic. Like for example, he suggested that one of the boxes um, would be an anechoic chamber, that is a soundproof chamber. Well, I don't know if you've ever been in a so-called soundproof or anechoic. Listen, there's no way that you can be inside one of those chambers and not know that you're in one. Yep. It's just, it's quite a, for any listener who's never been in one, I really encourage you go, <laughs> you go try that sometime wow. and see what I mean. So I, I did the one that I could do which is of course I created a small, and yes, unfortunately it looks, it looked just like a coffin. Uh, <laughs> and it was composed of, uh, I think it was 18 gauge mild steel with a specially designed hatch and all that. And so I actually tested the VLF side of the theory. And for myself and a few other people who went inside, we found that the hum either was not attenuated at all, or it got louder. Okay. Yeah, and so that, in conjunction with numbers of other informal reports leads us to believe that VLF radio transmissions are not the source, the immediate source of the worldwide hum. Now, some people have suggested ELF. I, ha I can't actually rule that out. Okay. E ELF, ELF radio transmissions actually transit right through the globe and, and, and actually cannot be blocked. Um, that's, why the, that's why the world's militaries use them for initial communication to the deep submarines they'll send an elf gong so to speak mm -hmm. and then the submarines will uh, ascend up to vlf antenna depth and and so on and so on Got it. Okay. okay so basically again trying to stay focused on your question yeah i then having dispensed with the vlf electromagnetic theory i then cast my net out and simply sat and conducted thought experiments and, and wondered about what sorts of experiments would, um, or sorry, what sorts of hypotheses or theories could make sense given what we know or think we know. And then I came up with my reasonably well-known list of four theories, mm -hmm. the first of which we've just discussed. Yep. And there's, there's, there's several things that, 
um, are very troubling with regard to the hypotheses and the, I, I think the one that I keep coming back to is the timeline. The timeline is crucial here. If we believe that the world hum first rose to prominence or awareness in the late 1960s to early 1970s, something must have happened during that period to cause this. And why in England? Mm -hmm. Why in large Scotland? Why over in Bristol? And, and then why then, you know, less than 10 years later to the United States and so on and so on. And now apparently around the world, people can hear it well. Uh, the, 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 there's several answers to that. The first is that it has been here all along. And so occasionally when I have a few hours, I'll go through my archives on the Times of London, all the way back to the early 1800s and looking for evidence of the hum. And I found some rather striking things. If I wasn't full employed otherwise, there were several, there'd be several side questions I'd be fascinated to explore, such as why is it that every, let's say 30 to 40 years in England, there was these massive spikes in hauntings and news and haunting stories and ghost stories. It's not static. It comes mm -hmm. in, um, in like 30 to 40, 50 year cycles. And I, I'd be interested in that. I'd also be interested in, in learning more about the people who several times historically have reported the, the sound of a large swarm of bees. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to remember that the classic description of the hum is that it's the sound of a truck or a vehicle idling outside one's home. Well, I mean, people didn't have that language back in the early 1800s. Therefore, what language or metaphor did they use? So that's one thing that I've, 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 I've asked people several times to go look. And despite my public calls for sort of a coordinated uh, outsourced, uh, public sourced research, um, uh, very few people have taken me uh, up on on that yeah. um, so uh, with regard to the timeline um, there's also the possibility that it's been let's say 20 to 30 years before it became like who knows yeah. if we if we take the current timeline then the, one of the possibilities is is that either a new technology was introduced around that time that is having some effect on people that way or some either prescription or over-the-counter medication was introduced around that time which incidentally is why we ask such questions on our survey now, such as uh, prescription drug use. We know, for example, that there are some antibiotics that are, that are autotoxic, that is O-T-O, autotoxic. Um, even some basic uh, penicillins can be damaging to the hearing system. Simple aspirin in some cases can be toxic to the auditory system. So question, is there a prescription drug or over-the-counter drug that became available in England and then became available in America. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, there's people out there, pharmacologists perhaps, who could answer that question, but they're perhaps even less interested than I am in this question. And I only have so many hours in the day yeah. to um, devote to this. Uh, so having sat and thought uh, about it, um, I, I came up with those three other theories. The one that we're pursuing right now is the fact that like tinnitus, but arising from a quite different mechanism, um, we think that the hum is in fact internally generated, that it is a perception of sound and not a sound. I think the evidence that it's not a sound is, is overwhelming. And some people you know, don't really want to hear that, but <laughs> pardon the pun, but the um, just as a quick example, if 
I take highly sensitive recording equipment. Like, I mean, you're in the business. Um, and for those listeners who might know, I, I, I own a Zoom H4M Pro, which is a, an excellent a professional quality um, portable recording uh, gear. And I've taken it into various locations and um, I've, I've deployed it and come back with absolutely nothing. If you take several people who can hear the hum and put them in a room, they will perceive diff different frequencies. That never, ever happens with standard sounds. Like, for example, if I walk over to my piano over here, and if I strike, let's say, three octaves below middle C, and then get blindfolded people to walk up to the piano and match that note, they will all match the same note. That's because they're all hearing the same note. So there's evidence upon evidence that people who hear the hum are not hearing a standard acoustic sound. Um, and so therefore it leads to the fact that it's either internally generated or perhaps something external, which is for whatever reason, generating a, a different perceived frequency. Um, and there are also other indicators that point to the internal source. I'd, I'd like to share one with you that not sure. a lot of people know about. Uh, there's, there's a thing called an autoacoustic emission, which can even be recorded in newborn babies. These are um, clicking sounds or sounds that are generated internally. In fact, they even produce microphones that can be inserted into the inner ear that can record these emissions, which are, which are very common. Now, what's quite remarkable is that people who suffer from, uh, or just should, I shouldn't say suffer, who can sense the world hum, almost every single last one of them will report that air travel will disrupt the hum for either three or four days. This is a fascinating result. And the reason why is because the precise same thing happens with autoacoustic emissions. Uh, a German researcher by the name of Frosch was first to report this. In fact, Frosch, that's F-R-O-S-C-H. His paper, which is not well known, is titled, um, uh, The Hum and Autoacoustic Emissions May Arise from the Same Source. And he did some interesting um, um, studies on people who detect hums. In, in German, the hum is known as the Brumton. And this is um, what motivated him to go, to go study that. So we, we have that connection to autoacoustic emissions. We also have the rather unusual behavior of the hum. That is, if you are hearing the hum and there's a sudden um, loud masking noise, such as uh, a loud exhalation or a, or a shaking of the head, which is the one that uh, Bernie Hutchins promotes. I don't, I simply find that sensation so uncomfortable. I, I don't, I don't do it myself, yeah. but either that loud exhalation or shaking of the head will disrupt the hum for maybe three to 400 milliseconds. Okay. It actually short circuits the hum for up to half a second and then it returns. But that doesn't happen with standard low frequency sounds. So it, it's actually diagnostic in that sense. All of these things taken together lead me to believe that this is something that the body is generating now. The only question is uh, why and how? Could it be that the hum is subsequent to some other type of exposure. For example, if you know people who spend their day wearing headphones or spend their day on a jackhammer, mm 
or um, exposed to loud noises, they are at a hugely increased risk for developing tinnitus later on. Those things don't cause the tinnitus directly immediately. Well, could it be that the hum is similar and the fact that some other thing, some other exposure causes a subsequent hum um, in these people? Well, um, that's interesting because when you look at the demographics of the hum, the mean and median age of hum years is about 40.5 years, 41 years of age, which in fact is the same as the population distribution for North America. Okay. And so there's, 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 there's counter evidence and also supporting evidence uh, in, that, in that sense. Um, and there's, again, trying to be disciplined and returning to your, to your original question. The, it's, it's this sort of cold and analytical approach that in fact has moved things forward. One of the hardest things for scientists to do, and, you, and you've already come right out and said it, is to look yourself in the mirror one morning and say, I, I've been wrong. That's, for example, what distinguishes science from religion. Because mm-hmm. um, that conclusion is not, is not permissible in, in, in faith systems. And not meaning to distract or to initiate a fight with anybody, but sure, it's sure. but, but it, 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 it's a sharp distinction. Yeah, the scientific community, by the way, works by consensus, contrary to what some people think. Mm-hmm. It's simply a consensus of experts and specialists in the field that determine scientific truth, if we can use that term. So it's it's that mindset that I was raised with, and that I and that I live by that caused me to look at the BLF theory and all that time, several years, by the way, that I invested to finally arrive at, the, at my conclusion that that's simply not so. The VLF theory, I don't think has any merit anymore. Now, if someone presents to me impressive um, evidence, then I'll, I'll reevaluate it. That's the mindset that I've approached. And I've just given you an example of some of the steps and side steps that I've taken and the questions that I've asked along the way. And it's where we are right now. And it, it's interesting what you had mentioned way back when we were st- starting to talk about how you're, you're a bit of a generalist, a uh, wide reader, uh, somebody who's, who, who has a curiosity about things. And that seems to have served you very well because an acoustic scientist who's very invested in um, just acoustics may have dove in too far and then found that they hit the dead end and um, would need to shift their their research program over. And so the fact that you've taken the generalist approach seems like it's really helped the project out. When you give a person a, a hammer for a present, um, th- many things start looking like nails. <laughs> and what I, what I mean by that is, it, 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 well, precisely what you said, if you take a specialist, in any particular field, whether it's radio physics or acoustics or audiology or even seismology, that's the filter that they use to interpret what they see and experience and what they and what and what and data that they see. The image that I would like to give is that my um, scientific knowledge is uh, my scientific knowledge is a mile wide and an inch deep, whereas the specialists are an inch wide and a mile deep. And so um, that ability to connect, even including, by the way, psychology, and and I'm a teacher of psychology, amongst other subjects, has been invaluable in if, again, nothing more than simply asking the right questions. 
And I do have people on my team who are actual scientists, but they would leave, um, they would let me play to my strengths, which is interacting with the media and also helping teach the public. I am a teacher after all. And so between the three of us, and I would identify three of us as being the main core here, um, we can um, we can address in a scientifically valid way all the things that we are, um, all the things that we're grappling with here. I, I, I should be honest and say that, or at least transparent and say that I had reached a point about six months ago where I even reached out to both of the other team members and said, I said to them in, a, in sort of a, a soul-searching way, I, I really don't know what I should be doing now. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I've, I've suggested all the experiments. And by the way, several of them would be so simple to conduct, but just simply no one has gone out and done them. Mm-hmm. I can't go do them in some cases. Um, as, and that everything from a, getting into an fMRI machine to descending to a mile below the earth in, uh, in several mining locations. I, I, I mean, each of these would reveal important information. I have appeared, um, my project has appeared on most of the world's major, major media. Uh, we haven't cracked CNN or uh, CNN or the Drudge Report yet, but, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm not that they are the gold standard for anything, but, um, apart from that, and the advocacy that's ongoing, and the fact that clearly, you know, tens of millions of people have at least been made aware of the topic, I, I, I wasn't sure where to go. And I really think that um, apart from any ongoing advocacy that I do, what really has to happen is that one of these times, there will be somebody listening to a podcast like this one or even inside edition or, or some of the things, some person with um, serious credentials yep. associated with the lab, somebody will listen and go, Oh, wait a minute. This is actually, this, this actually is quite cool. Yeah. I'm going I'm to go get the answer to this and never mind, take the credit, but, but whatever. I mean, I, I, what I think it would be awesome that the people who are actually suffering from this, like I don't suffer from this. It's just a curiosity to me, but there's some people who suffer terribly from this for them to finally get an answer, I think would be immensely gratifying to me because sometimes the answer doesn't necessarily lead to amelioration of the problem, but itself, it, it helps to know exactly what it is. Yeah. Even in tinnitus, like there really is no effective treatment for tinnitus, but it sure helps to know exactly what it is. So, so I have another another person that would really help <laughs> help yeah. out if they were listening, which is um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Contact recently, the Jodie Foster Carl Sagan movie, but uh, there is a billionaire in that movie who just happens to take up her case. Um, it would be great, I'm not great, but maybe great if there was a billionaire that was suffering from the hum who just happened to have some money to put aside to start a lab, and. Um, throw into it. And the reason I, I bring this up is that I've been in the business of research funding um, at institutions of higher education at, at, and also funding small nonprofits for most of my career. So that's, that's my day job outside of doing scientific, I guess, areas of scientific um, inquiry right now. Um, that's my day job is trying to find funding for people. And so I've worked with scientists who have had to do the same thing you're describing where 
their their research area um, dries up and they have to shift gears and figure out what they're going to do next. And it seems like it's it's uh well I saw there a joke once and it said uh, that the next step and uh, the scientific method that is not there is seek funding, um, <laughs> which which I really loved. But that would be, you know, if there was some some way to do that, um, some way to get get the word out there. Money doesn't hurt is what I would say uh, for this type of this type of thing. Well, let, let me respond by saying first, I have seen the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, well, look, uh, if whether we take medical conditions such as lupus or prostate cancer or breast cancer, or whether we talk about mental illness um, such as bipolar, they all have their poster boys and girls. Charlie Sheen for bipolar. Um, what is it uh, for lupus? I think it's is it Selena Gomez, whoever whoever it might be. So they they all have their patrons, so to speak, and and they they provide that visibility and in some cases funding. My contention would be that there almost certainly have been powerful, wealthy, and famous people who have heard the hum, but either haven't been aware of it or have been afraid to say so. Yeah. Now, the, the fear aspect, um, I think, should be greatly diminished now. I think it's been largely normalized, and I've tried to play a role in that. With regard to the awareness aspect, well, I've actually tried to accomplish that as well at the same time. So you, you mentioned ability, you know, people with deep pockets who may be uh, interested. Well, I mean, uh, I... I it's actually difficult to um, provide that awareness in a legitimate and a non-threatening way. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it just sounds like spam, sure. um, <laughs> really. And um, but there are uh, individuals, and including, by the way, people with deep scientific curiosity, even if it's Bill Gates, mm -hmm. who may soon not have as much money, or could be uh, Elon Musk, or. Uh, or, or whomever, if they ever just get mildly interested in it, and if they view that there is legitimate work being done, then I would say that your suggestion would be um, the one method to bypass the universities and to bypass the, the, the corporate private labs and actually push to a solution. And it's perfectly clear why, why the corporate labs are not interested. Mm -hmm. Because there, there's, there's no money to be made in this. Sure. Yeah, it, 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 there's nothing to be made here. Yep. And uh, because, you know, think about it. If we have to go door to door begging to get research funds for cancer, which affects like 30 to 40% of the population, how on earth are we going to get um, funding for a nuisance uh, phenomenon that affects perhaps 3% 3, 3 of the population? Yeah. And so I'm, I am, uh, I'm, I'm, very much in agreement with your uh, uh, suggestion regarding <laughs> regarding money, and no, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, it would it would be excellent to see that happen. And so, I guess um, I'm, I'm conscious of the amount of time you have. Um, I do want to say what. So beyond beyond the money and the awareness, do you think there's a, a tipping point? And, and where do you think it would be reached? Um, it's been a while since I've done any uh, Thomas Kuhn you know, a paradigm shift, but understanding that this exists, um, 
is it is it just that awareness is it is it something else i'm sure the in your mind you've <laughs> even had fantasies of how this all of a sudden spools out and the the road is you know laid clear and you're able to just run with the project at it to its to its conclusion but is there a paradigm shift that happens and then what what would you say you thought think the ending is do you think that there is an end point that's satisfying to uh to people and that would be satisfying to people who are legitimately suffering and people who just find it annoying i think um again without aiming to be offensive mm -hmm. i think that to a certain degree oops i think um to a certain degree that american society has taken a step backward in the last 20 years in terms of um, uh, intellectual curiosity, um, um, belief in science and the scientific method, and has also drifted more towards superstition um, and, the, uh, and, and, the, and the trumping of um, intuition and emotions over facts. In other words, I think, I, I think the mountain has become taller in the sense of what has to happen. I mean, I mean I, in other words, I think the background has changed yeah. somewhat. And I, and I come across that every day um, in the e kind of emails I get and the sort of interactions I have with people. I would say that even if my own mind and in my, and in my teams, if we conclusively solve this, that is simply well it could even be less than half half the struggle i'll have to return to the the metaphor of classic medical ailments it is striking to me that serious um, physical illnesses that affect every single one of our families mm -hmm. are desperately underfunded mm -hmm. in terms of the research and therefore there is a possibility number one that my team and i will solve this and it will simply become a footnote and once my advocacy stops um, for me uh, my there uh, maybe maybe i'll be compelled to uh, if, if for whatever reason my advocacy stops and uh, it, it simply this this issue could fade into the background again mm -hmm. or again it there is a possibility that it's solved in a way where the solution to it could move into the to the mainstream medical repertoire. That's what I would really hope for. Okay. Um, and and there's be several other sort of um, uh, what's the term they use? Is it orphan diseases, orphan uh, syndromes, where um, that only affects smaller numbers of people, but nevertheless are still being actively studied. And occasionally we get pharmaceutical companies who will be motivated, in some cases only for tax, re tax write-off reasons, uh, to go and to experiment with treatments to, um, to relieve people for this. I mean, because right now the only thing people have to relieve this, this issue at night is to turn on the bathroom fan. There's really yeah. not much more. So I'm not entirely optimistic that we're going to go to a full solution in a way that's going to improve people's lives, but I am extremely stubborn and I, and I am, and I am curious and, and every once in a while I get reason to 
uh, be optimistic about the directions of things. And every once in a while, I'll get an email from somebody that says, thank you very much for your work and please don't stop. And that's the kind of thing that would be the wind in my sails in, in that regard. Keep keep going. I mean, um, I'm, I'm hoping that because of COVID and how, uh, how much it's affected everybody's lives, that there's a greater desire for basic research and, and just discovery um, as a result of all, all of that. Um, was there, was there anything we didn't cover in this that you think is important for people to know or any last words on the subject? Every uh, time I'm interviewed on this topic, it, it, it goes in different directions. And, and, and I, I would say with regard to this podcast, um, I would say that um, I think that so many everyday, serious, educated, responsible people from doctors to lawyers to judges, so many people either publicly or privately have come forward and reported this, that we assume that this is real. Mm -hmm. And um, if I could, I'll end with that rhetorical flourish that I use at least once in every single interview that I give. And you probably heard this before. Might so have. You probably know what's coming. Is I'll ask you the rhetorical question. Do you believe people who report tinnitus? And the answer is yes. And then comes the, the important question. Why do you believe them? And once, once we pause before we answer that question, and we look at the actual uh, people um, and the reports of people who hear the world hum, we, we then move it to that, that matter of fact territory where these people are experiencing some sort of auditory phenomenon. Some of us are suffering from it and it would be, um, it would advance medicine, it would advance science and uh, it would satisfy my curiosity <laughs> if we could, um, find the answer because I will quite honestly tell you just to finish that it still happens every once in a while late at night if I'm awake and I'll hear that noise and I'll think I wonder what that is <laughs> <laughs> oh wow seriously yeah. I, say, I wonder what that is and so that's that's what that's what drives it that's it well thank you so much hey I appreciate your time and that's you cool. know I appreciate what you're doing for just people worldwide. It's, it's a, it's a real thing, really just an amazing thing you're doing and just please keep going. And, uh, you know, any way that this little podcast can help is, is great. You know? Let's, let's touch base again in six months and see where it is. Sounds good. Sounds okay. good. Thank you, Dr. Pearson. Bye now. Okay. Take care. Bye. And that was that. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and got some food for thought. If you want to learn more about Dr. McPherson's project, head over to www.thehum.info to get details and see the data he's collected. I'll also put some uh, light reading into the show notes if you want to follow the trail I followed to get here. One thing you did not hear today was an advertisement. At no point did I stop the action to sell you life insurance or a dinner kit service or other stuff you don't need. Why didn't I do that? Well, because nobody's willing to advertise with me. That's why. Trust me, I have tried. So instead of selling you some stuff you don't need, I could use a favor. First, review this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, whatever. I can see you listening. I know you're out there. 
If every listener left an honest review, we'd have hundreds of reviews across multiple platforms. We're not a huge podcast, but we're growing fast, and I'm really happy to have your ears, so go over, and when there's five stars, one, two, three, four, five, add up. Give me one of those five-star reviews. I'm giving this to you for free, remember. Second, if you like my work, consider going to mercenarypen.substack.com and signing up with your email address. That's all you need, just the email address. You'll get an email every time I publish a podcast and every time I put a writing piece up on there. It's a great way for me to stay in touch with you. And wouldn't you know, there's some content that can only be unlocked with a paid subscription on Substack. I'd love to see you become one of my paid supporters and reading some of those things. Um, this is, I guess, an advertisement now. You can call me a sellout later. Otherwise, there's free content on there too, including some of my fiction writing, graduate work, and Tinderbox episode transcripts as I process them for the web. And lastly, I just want to thank you for your attention. Feedback really fuels me. It keeps me sharp. So write me at tinderboxpodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment on SoundCloud where you can actually comment moment by moment. It's a great platform. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know I've got a few projects on the burner. At the moment, I'm shopping around an article that condenses the events of the last episode, which was called The First Thing is Character. That was the one that described the showdown about the uh, financial system between Sam Untermeyer and J.P. Morgan in 1912. Well, I've gone with a provocative title for that condensed version called The Man Who Killed J.P. Morgan. Hopefully we'll see that in the wild soon. In the next episode, I'll update you some on some research that I'm doing on the topic of homeschooling, believe it or not. And let's see, there's uh, three or four other podcast episodes in development. And I have a list of about, I'm looking at my whiteboard right now, man, probably about a dozen going that I want to cover. And it's uh, going to take me a couple years to work through all of that. So sometimes it's comforting to know that there's no shortage of conflicts that I can cover out there, which means until we get in touch next time, stay safe out there in the tinderbox. box.